I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. I'm returning after a pre-Labor Day break with a new episode of Parallax Views. And on this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Project Censored's Nolan Higdon, who has been on the show a number of times before, as well as first-time guest Allison Butler of the Media Freedom Foundation. Together, they recently penned a piece at USA Today entitled Strangers are spying on your children and schools are paying them to do it. Nolan and Allison will explain to us the ways in which big tech is creating potentially Orwellian conditions for students in American schools. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. Let's get right to it with Nolan Higdon and Allison Butler. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Uh, f- great friend of the show, Nolan Higdon, and also Allison Butler of the Media Freedom Foundation. We're going to be talking about some work you guys have been doing on the issue of big tech surveillance in the American education system, students are being spied on. You both recently wrote a piece in USA Today on this subject. But uh, before we get into that, how is everyone doing today? Doing well. Pleasure to be back uh, with you, as always, and be on the program. Um, so thanks for having us. And of course, Allison, this is um, your first appearance on the show. So uh, maybe for my listeners, uh, I think uh, my listeners know Nolan from Project Censored, but you're, you're involved with uh, the Media Freedom Foundation. So maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, sure. I'm on the board for the Media Freedom Foundation. I operate as the vice president, and part of our work is really focusing on uh, independent journalism, independent media, and making sure that uh, people have access to non-corporate media sources and can understand the media environment outside of the corporate bubble. So the piece that you uh, co-wrote together at USA Today came out, um, I believe maybe a week ago now, uh, strangers are spying on your children and schools are paying them to do it. That is, um, that's a frightening headline. Uh, so let's get right into it. Uh, 
what led you guys to write this piece and, and what was the sort of impetus for it? And how, how are the schools uh, spying on our children or how is big tech uh, with the blessing of schools uh, spying on our children? Uh, yeah, well, that's there's a lot going on there. Um, Nolan and I first got into this project in part because, you know, we're both really invested in education um, and we're both real proponents of uh, public schooling. You know, I work at a public institution. Um, we both work at public institutions, but they're not what we there's there's a relationship there that sort of the is versus the ought, right? What public schools ought to be is not what they are. Um, and we know collectively, um, it's pretty common knowledge these days that pretty much anything we do online is our data is mined. Um, our data is captured. But there's and. I think we I think I can speak for Nolan when I say we both find that problematic. However, there is the caveat that as grown-ups, if we sign up for a credit card or if we sign up for a social media site, we might not be reading the fine print. That's kind of on us to to decide whether or not we're going to do that. But we at least on some level know that we are by signing up for this material, we are giving our data away. Um when we're looking at technology, surveillance technologies coming into schools, students aren't given that as an option. Um, first of all, most of them, particularly in K through 12, are under the age of 18, so you're dealing with minors. Uh, but if they are provided with a laptop, if they are provided with a tablet of some sort, um, if they are told to turn their work in via a technology, that's not an active um, agreement to have their data mined. Uh, so a lot of this is happening when you you know the wording that you use that schools are giving this their blessing. I don't know if it's actually blessing so much as it is it's not known right i mean this these technologies and, and we can expand on this definitely these technologies absolutely come in as convenient there's no doubt about it um certainly during the pandemic uh, any kind of access to digital technology enabled schooling but it's not a panacea it's not a perfect solution it's not a, a fair solution uh and it does mean that young people and their families and their teachers are giving away data without necessarily proactive knowledge about that. So real, real quick, and I'll I'll let Nolan add to that, but yeah, I, I was wondering how I, I should have worded that because is this a, a problem with the public schools or is this really a problem uh, of big tech? Where, where do you guys see this being? I, I see it a problem for, for both. Um, so you know, I think what your question is getting at, right, is um, big tech has increasingly been able to sell the American population uh, on the idea that constant surveillance is a good thing, right? So having Alexa in the house constantly listening or your smart TV or smart vacuum constantly listening is a good thing because it's going to improve the user experience. It's going to, you know, connect you with the people you want to connect with. It's going to show you the items you want to buy. But, but really, there's a much more uh, pernicious aspect to it, right? The, this data is being collected not to, to give you the things you want, but largely to protect and direct your behavior toward what they want um, the user to do. This is where schools come in in a very interesting way, particularly public education. Um, student, for the most part, young people are required to go to school. So you have a large captive audience in public schools and corporations have long known this and long tried to get into the classroom to exploit that captive audience. And these technologies are just the latest iteration of, of how they were able to achieve that. Um, what we, you know, are arguing in the piece, you know, Allison and I have our own opinions on about what should be done in, in school spaces. But at the very least, we're saying, look, teachers, parents, students, administrators, they should all be cognizant of what is being done to students in the schools and then make an informed decision about whether or not they want these practices to continue. And that's just simply not the case right now. A, a moment ago, you asked about the, the origin of this project you know, at a, at a personal level, and I shared these frustrations with Allison, who I know has had her own experiences and shares them as well. When we're in a school setting and, and things are, are proposed um, if you bring up the idea of surveillance or data collection, people just look at you like a deer in the headlights. They have no clue what you're you're talking about, right? Like um, some devices, for instance, record a teacher lecturing in the classroom so it can be transcribed in real time for a student with a 
um, ability issue who needs transcription, that's great for for that student. But we have to also understand that it comes with the threat of um, surveilling the classroom. And does that mean if students are surveilled, does that mean they're not going to share as much? Um, does that is it going to change the conversation? Does it mean I'm going to make my lecture um, perhaps more more clear or use different wording? So I'm practicing a form of self censorship because we're being watched. Uh, so I think these are kind of the issues we're, we're, that motivated us to write this piece. And we're hoping that we'll have more informed conversations about this in schools. You described the the sort of tech being used here as sort of a complex set of uh, surveillance tools um, found in software like Turnitin, Class Dojo, Dojo, Illuminate Education, and G Suite for Education. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about this software, and then we can talk about the the hardware like Chromebooks and Apple tablets. Allison, you're yeah happy to give a couple examples. So Turnitin, for example. Uh, presents itself as a technology to help teachers weed out plagiarism, right? That if students turn a paper in via Turnitin, it, the Turnitin technology, reads, scans the paper, looks for phraseology that might be copied. Um, and on that level, it can certainly save teachers a lot of time, having caught students plagiarizing like the old fashioned way, uh, either by recognizing the word choices or quite frankly, Googling them. Uh, it's, it's arduous and it is heartbreaking. There's no doubt about it. There's no teacher that I know of that looks forward to uh, plagiarism, look, working with a student on plagiarism. It's a terrible thing. But with the Turnitin technology, there's two things that are going on behind the scenes. One, it automatically, from the first day of class, sets up a relationship of mistrust, right? If we think of day one of school, getting to know our students, our students getting to know us, um, depending on where they are in their academic career, it can be um, periods of great, huge life transition. Uh, and your initial relationship is one of mistrust, that the student now needs to prove that they are trustworthy, which is real different than everybody coming in and saying, we're in this learning project together and we're going to work together. So it sets up this antagonistic relationship, which I think um, can be seen in multiple other types of digital technologies, where as much as we call them social media, they often leave us isolated and alone. We don't generally check our socials in a group setting, right, or over dinner, um, or in a conversation. It's usually time that we spend by ourselves. So part of also what Turnitin does is it it continues to isolate us. Um, I think the, the slightly more technologically insidious problem, there's like, you know, that's sort of like a human relationship problem. I think the more technologically insidious problem with Turnitin is that it's also going to, it's also doing some of what Nolan talked about with this idea of predictive analytics, right? Turnitin is reading the word choices, the language, it's monitoring them, it's it's um, mining that for kind of key phrases or key terminology, and then that gets maneuvered to get, you know, given back to that user or those users in materials like consumable goods, right? So it's starting to narrow our focus of what we want to purchase, operating, of course, under the assumption that we want to be consuming and we want to be purchasing, right? And all of that is happening behind the scenes. Class Dojo, for example, um, in some ways it is very convenient. It's an opportunity for teachers to um, like post student grades and student work and all that kind of stuff, but it also includes posting behavior. Um, and it is across grades. Anecdotally, I know somebody who's a preschool teacher who's required to use Class Dojo, and she's like, hey, that doesn't work with three-year-olds, but now you've got data from three-year-olds that's being entered into the system, even though trying to enter behavioral data for three-year-olds, I would imagine, would be quite the conundrum on a daily basis. Uh, so it's not, it's, it is presented to teachers as a tool in many cases to make their lives more convenient, but it's that behind the scenes that makes it much more insidious and much more dangerous. Now, I'm sure there will be people that will try to say, well, you know, uh, maybe there's responsibility here and there won't be any sharing or, or selling of data, uh, but you guys also address that there's reasons to be concerned even beyond that. I don't know. Uh, if you want to comment on that, Allison or Nolan first. Um. Yeah, um, I think there's, um, 
you know, one of the things we point out is a lot of this language is quite vague and there is loopholes in existing um, legislation. So, uh, of course, students have privacy rights um, when when they're enrolled in, in an education, um, educational institution. But a uh, loophole is that the school can share data and content with educational partners. And these um, corporate um, big tech companies are seen as educational partners by the school. So, you know, things that you or I could not learn about a student at another school, they can get access to that content under the auspices of, of serving students. And then what they do with that data is not always clear. One of the one of the kind of mis misconceptions that, that folks have um, is that these companies, you know, quote unquote, sell data. That's not really true. What, what they usually do is uh, these companies collect data. Um, data brokers may buy it, but the big companies actually sell an analysis of data. So they're selling a read of individuals. So the more data points they can collect on um, students, the more they think they can predict or, or, or modify their behavior. But even if you're not swayed by that argument, if you think, okay, you, know, you can't prove these companies are sharing all this data, one thing we do know is data breaches are quite common. Um, companies and schools constantly experience data breaches. And so this information can then be um, captured by anyone out there who's interested in it. It may just be a data broker, um, but we also know there's other pernicious actors, um, people who are uh, attempting to target someone for stalking, for example, um, you know, political campaigns, you name it, um, seek this type of data to weaponize it for their own purposes. And I think going back to um, one of the questions that you asked a little bit earlier, that that difference between the sort of software and hardware, one way that these tech companies are seen as educational partners is because many of them are providing hardware, right? They're providing laptops or tablets um, or other kind of digitized technology, which again, going back to this notion of convenience or ease, absolutely, right? Makes it very convenient, very easy. Uh, but that is that is an instant collection of data, which then, you know, following what Nolan said, can be mined and, and, and you know, um, gathered and then analyzed and sold in a way that starts to, to share bulk amounts of information. So when you think of something like Apple or Google, you might not think of them as educational, but because they provide these, this hardware, that's how they become educational partners. Can we talk a little bit more about this issue of, um, you mentioned data breaches, uh, Nolan, and I guess there's been uh, studies on this and and even, you know, some of these uh, software companies like Illuminate Education have had actual uh, breaches uh, leading to, you know, personal data of students being leaked, essentially. Yeah, these data um, breaches are, are quite um common and uh the, the security aspect of data has not been perfected and this isn't just something that happens to, to schools or these uh educational big tech companies this happens to all big tech companies all the time um there are stories about this you know one of the interesting things when doing this type of research is realizing that these breaches happen so often that they no longer become like front page news if i can use an old school concept um, they happen so frequently the news media cover it, but they don't um, centralize their, their focus on it because it's it's so common. So another kind of misconception we have here is that the people who are collecting or people or companies who are collecting our data, we assume that they're protecting it, but that's not even true either. Um, this data is out there for for anyone to to access. Allison, do you want to add to that? And I also want to know, I think uh, that I think there's one study that even found that there were you know, 1,800 data breaches in schools between 2005 and 2021. And I also mentioned, I guess, Illuminate Education, uh, that there was a data breach with that recently, right? Yes, there was a data breach with um, Illuminate Education. And one of the things, a couple key things that come out of the Illuminate breach is it had um, the data from the two largest public school systems in the country, Los Angeles and New York. Um, New York City alone has one million students um, in the public school system, right? Just in New York City, just in the five boroughs. That's a lot of data, right? And then you add in the second largest city with the public school system, um, 
And it's, again, it's not just grading data. It's not just they got an A on this test or a B on this test. It's behavioral data. It's um, subjective data, mood, um, thoughts, be, you know, uh, uh, impressions of students. And then that follows and it follows minors right a, a, a lot of what we're talking about are are I mean, not to sound too patronizing but these are children right who again are not actively uh are not actively consenting to have their data both taken or shared or sold or anything like that um but yeah to nolan's point i mean this is happening so frequently it's almost not news right it's it's one is almost more surprised when there isn't a data breach article uh, in in the daily news. And we don't, I mean, we're working pretty hard on this project, but we don't have to work too hard to find examples of data breaches. What kind of data are we talking about? So, so like things like attendance and, and what else? I keep, I, attendance could be um, something, but but it gets, they're much more. Um, I was going to say it goes much deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It go, yeah. It goes much deeper. So, uh, you know, obviously social security numbers, date of birth, age, parents' name, addresses, all that kind of stuff. Um, sort of old school material you would expect in a pre-data data breach, right? Um, a pre-digital era data breach. Um, but in, in the digital era, like sort of Allison was saying, I mean, this could be like access to to turn it in. It, it could be access to Canvas files. It, it could be access to anything the student has submitted. Um, and this is where we where I think the educational space becomes important. And this gets back to what we were talking about earlier about is this sort of just a big tech problem or education problem. Effective education necessitates a space where students feel safe to explore ideas and think things out and get things wrong and make mistakes. That That's just how we learn. It's the nature of learning in the classroom. If every paper you turn in, every post you make, every comment you share is something that can be collected and analyzed and brought out later to use against you, students are rightly going to be apprehensive of sharing information. They're, they're simply just not going to learn. And worse, when they do make mistakes and they are documented, if these things um, are breached or shared with the wrong people, these are things that could come back to haunt students for simply just making a mistake in the classroom, which again is is necessary for education. And I think I think uh, the Dobbs decision to overthrow Roe v. Wade is a really prime example for people to learn from. It's an educational moment. What is Legal today may be illegal tomorrow. And so what you, you know, defended or thought or said today um, may change tomorrow. And uh, we, we've seen how law enforcement is working with big tech to uh, track down individuals who are simply seeking abortion or just lo looking at um, information about abortions. Um, they, they couldn't do that without big tech um, surveillance uh, to the nature in which they're doing it now. And so I think that should be a warning for folks to take privacy a lot more seriously. I, I think there's a, a trajectory of what is happening in the digitized environment that is making it go from sort of understandable technical snafus to really frightening stuff. If you think about the sort of quote unquote early days of the internet or the early days of schools having internet access, probably through something as old fashioned as an ethernet connection, there were lots of stories that came out about students working on, for example, science projects where they would get restricted from certain websites because the language used in the search could have, um, indicated that they were looking up something else. So for example, if a student might be doing a project on breast cancer, the idea that they look up the word breast might get rejected or restricted because they're definitely looking at pornography, which might not necessarily be the case, right? Those were somewhat, in hindsight, are sort of laughable, right? The idea of talking about protection and classroom protections and so on and so forth. It seems like such a minimal thing when we jump forward to today and to Nolan's point about overturning Roe versus Wade, um, one of the things that's that's out that's being discussed right now is the idea that any woman 
or teenage girl or whatever who looks up like reproductive health online could potentially get tagged and followed because maybe she is seeking an abortion. Uh, young women, adult women who have cycle trackers on their smartphones can have their cycle be monitored. And if their cycle is irregular, which by the way, happens to every single woman on the planet at some point, they can be monitored for some sort of nefarious irregularity. So we go from a term, a word being kind of almost laughed at because it's um, it's meeting a criteria to following, in this case specifically, women around um, and monitoring women, um, which means it's not just a question of anybody's privacy. It's also looking at very particular slices of humanity and where their privacy intersects with something that can be weaponized or monetized. Uh, and that is some of the, you know, to go back to your question about what else is being like, released in these breaches, that's some of the stuff that is being released in breaches are perceived physical or mental health attributes, um, sites that people are checking. Uh, it very well could be for a class research project. It very well could be because people don't know what those words mean, but it starts to get tagged and followed and monitored in a way that, um, both eliminates autonomy and self-agency uh, as well as tracks a person. I was going to say too, I think there's even, um, you know, been breaches where migrant status and things of that nature have been uh, leaked as well. Yes, that that's absolutely in the case with Illuminate, uh, the breach that included Los Angeles and New York City, uh, young people's um, immigration status was absolutely part of that. So I want to get into a few other issues, but beyond the issue that you brought up, Nolan, of this leading to a lot more self-censorship among students, what do you think the other really key problems with this kind of surveillance are when it comes to students? Like, what harms could this have on different types of students even? You know, I, I could see the way that this tech could be used, um, you know, seemingly to help students, but... You know, I, I could also see how, uh, you know, it's it's it can go in very bad Orwellian directions very quickly. <laughs> yeah, it's a really I mean, it's a, it's a very large um, question. And I think we, we've talked about some of these examples, right? I mentioned like um, people will self-censor, uh, stalkers could take advantage of this, uh, corporations could take advantage of the data to, you know, um, nudge people to perhaps nudge students to, to purchase things. Um, we've talked about that. I think one of the, the elements we haven't we haven't talked about thus far that's really important to remember um, is uh, data in itself is not necessarily dangerous. It's it's that analysis of data and the conclusions people draw from that data, and this is where we get into it. Uh, really, um, kind of some of the complexity of um, the system of data collection analysis for profit, which we call surveillance capitalism. Um, essentially. Algorithms are what analyze data, and there's this kind of mystification of algorithms that they are some powerful, all-knowing force. And if we just turn over our autonomy to algorithms, we will have the perfect society. Look, algorithms do what the humans who design them tell them to do. And as a result, um, they have the same biases of their creator. Uh, there's some great research on this. Sophia Noble has probably the most famous research on this, Algorithms of Oppression, which she shows how algorithms from Silicon Valley reflect the uh, racist and sexist attitudes of their creators in, in Silicon Valley. Um, but back to your, your question in particular, a lot of these um, surveillance tools or educational tools, however you want to call, clarify them, are predicated in, on this idea of school safety. So if we can you know, spot a mental health issue or prevent the next school shooter, um, stop the next suicide, you know, we, we can intervene um, thanks to this data. Well, but there's also a lot of research that shows um, that these tools that claim to predict criminality in an individual end up just perpetuating racist notions that people of color are criminals. So there's a long history of um, exploiting and undermining um, people of color and perpetuating racism in the United States through surveillance. You can't have plantation slavery. You can't have the Jim Crow South without the, the surveillance element. And our schools are, are simply perpetuating that, collecting data on these students who are monitored um, for the purpose of finding out who is a criminal and who is not a criminal, 
as they go from one camera or one platform to, to the next. And so I think we also need to have an honest conversation about the ways in which these tools are perpetuating racism in schools as well. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because uh, throughout this conversation, I've been thinking about, you know, I've known schools and I've been to schools that have like um, emotional support classes for like, you know, quote unquote, I guess, trouble students. Um, and I, I think a lot of the ways those students are handled actually makes the situation worse. And I wonder if this kind of tech will be used against, you know, students that are perceived as, oh, causing problems or whatever. And it actually just makes any problems worse, if that makes sense. Oh, I think that's, I mean, I, I think that that is um, an unfortunate and logical next step, right? That when you're, when you're tracking particular bodies, in this case, bodies of color or bodies of um, low socioeconomic status or their families or so on and so forth. Uh, or just is, with like diagnoses, you know, like a mental health diagnoses, yep. you know, they're monitored more close. Yeah. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And and it's also going to, I mean, I think a sort of medium to long-term logical conclusion of this is that families, parents who are not interested in this and then would potentially pull their students from schools means that those who are left are the ones who are going to be, the, the monitoring is going to be even that much more concentrated. And I think we can, you know, there are historical parallels here, right? Um, when you look at Brown versus Board of Education and you look at the desegregation of schooling, that corresponds over about a decade of time, that corresponds to a significant increase in private schooling. Uh, because white families, white families of means didn't necessarily want to send their children to desegregated schools. And so you have a rise of, um, private schools, both religious and non-religious private schools. And it was a way of um, resegregating, but under the guise of choice, right? Under the guise of um, a family's commitment to their faith or to a particular education style or so on and so forth. Um, and so that dream of desegregated public education, while huge, right? I mean, absolutely huge shifts in the country come after the desegregation of schools. There's no doubt about it. We also see how things can be maneuvered, right? And I think one of the things that we might be seeing today is that those who are disinterested in these surveillance technologies, those who don't want their children to be monitored in such a way and who have the means can remove their students, can remove their children from these schools, but families without the means, families who might not be able to homeschool, families who might not be able to have at least one parent or guardian or hire somebody to support their children's learning, they don't have that option, which means their children are going to be even more closely monitored over time. And exactly to the point of what you were saying about monitoring um, and creating this analysis of data that could be read through a, a lens of race, could be led, read through a lens of class, a lens of mental health issues, certainly a lens of gender, absolutely a lens of sexuality, right? Don't say gay, um, a lens of sexuality. And it's just going to be that much more uh, concentrated. So in the article, one aspect that really interested me was uh, we're seeing this rise in, you know, attempted book bannings, um, especially uh, in, in recent months. You know, there's more and more talk of, you know, we, we need to ban these books. Uh, critical race theory is too much in the schools. How is this connected um, to the big tech issue that, that you're uh, discussing in the USA Today piece? Well, the... Um, the there's always there's always been a um, fear, particularly from um, conservatives on the right, but this has been shared by uh, leftists as well, that um, the educational process is, you know, corrupting um, students in one way or another, whatever corruption means to the individual making the accusation. And um, because of, you know, the establishment of things like academic freedom and, and tenure, um, you know, educators have largely been able to, to keep some of these forces outside of the classroom um, to one degree or another. So one way around that is to, to have things like book bans and banning books. 
Uh, which is to say like, well, you can't teach about this topic because we won't let you put the book in the classroom. Although an effective teacher doesn't necessarily need a book, but that's a discussion for a different day. Um, but by having surveillance um, tech in the classroom, this this gives folks an opportunity to be able to see what actually happens in the classroom. Um, this can be kind of like indirectly by, um, you know, looking at say like the Canvas page for your student, which is a learning management system, like a Blackboard or Moodle. Um, so they may be able to, to look at that page or now, during COVID, it could be done directly. We had like Zoom class meetings. Um, you can have all the language you want in your syllabus, but if someone's parent or guardian or family member is on the other side of the screen, you don't know. So now they're directly listening to the classroom and able to, to vocalize those complaints. And so it, it enables um, more of an opportunity for folks to know what's going on in the classroom to create more of a chilling effect on teachers and thus to legitimize the calls for doing things like book bans and things like that. Would you be able to add to that at all, Allison? Uh, the book banning issue uh, is very important to me because I, you know, I'm amazed at like the books that people have attempted to ban over the years. Even when I was in high school, I mean, you know, there there was talk about you know uh, some schools were were upset at, at children being taught uh, books like Brave New World or The Grapes of Wrath, and I was like, what? why and you know people would give all these different reasons but to me it's it's a horrible thing that, that book banning is even you know so considered by anyone really i think it's crazy but uh, how, how would you look at this issue in relation to book banning i think i mean i think one of the things that's really fascinating and by fascinating i mean terrifying about this current environment of book banning is where it's like how it's being directed right if you look at the history of book banning it's largely from families or communities who have concerns with the text i would probably disagree with those concerns but i do have a bit of a begrudging respect for a family member of a student or a community member saying you know i'm concerned about what's happening in our classrooms right do i think personally that the results should be a book that's banned of course not but there is something to be said for a community being involved current face of book banning isn't from family or community members it's from legislators it's from tech companies it's a top down right it's legislators looking for i don't know i mean i'm assuming looking for some sort of like election time hot button topics that gets them you know again in an old-fashioned term on the front page um you know that that fires up a base um gets those out who might not necessarily vote get like you know invested in a topic but that's not necessarily connected to the community it's not necessarily connected to ideas of teaching and learning or what it means to question right i mean i think one of the things that's really interesting about book bannings is the assumption that because you you as a student read or you as a class or you as a teacher assign a book that is considered controversial that your whole class and your whole community will buy into that book and that content hook line and sinker right it's it to me reveals a lack of trust in your teachers or in your students um and a fear like you're going to read something like brave new world or 1984 or the handmaid's tale and automatically believe exactly what's in that and i think that's well, i think that that's ridiculous but there are you know the idea behind teaching and learning to me um as as you know to to draw on what Nolan was saying before is to ask those questions, to make certain kinds of mistakes, to have that trial and error, to read opinions that are different or read about worlds that are different from where we live to expand our knowledge, but to presume that that means that the student is just going to fall in line with that. I think that shows that we don't trust our teachers and we don't trust our students. And that's really sad for me. And that kind of goes back to that turn it in, right? It sets up a relationship of mistrust. I would rather have students read controversial books uh, and or read non-controversial books and say, what are your thoughts on this? How can we under how can we map this against history? How can we map this against current events? What can be learned from this? But to learn something doesn't automatically mean that we agree with it or that we disagree with it for that matter. Um, so I would I think one of the biggest concerns with current day book banning is that it's just such a blatant mistrust 
of our of our communities. I, I was real quick. I was surprised. I didn't know this until uh, reading your article and and doing some background research. But you know, just for people to understand the book banning issue, you know, it, it's sort of become this political hot button. You know, with with people that are afraid of, I guess, critical race theory or whatever they they're calling it now. Uh, but you know, they're, they're starting. I mean, in Wisconsin. They recently, I guess, banned a book about Japanese internment camps. Uh, you know, when the emperor was divine, I, I believe was the book, and they they just said, you know, oh, this is too controversial, or, or it'll upset the balance of the classroom treatment of Japanese internment camps. I mean, this is complete madness, in my view. Yeah, there's a every, every single year uh, in this country, uh, anti censorship groups celebrate Ban Books Week um, for the sole purpose of trying to. Um, draw people's attention to the banning of of texts. Um, the, the outright bans, I mean, are are one one level in which this occurs. But even in the the um, publishing world now, um, they're they have like these sensitivity experts and things who are going through text to determine what students can and can't handle. Um, some of that may be useful, but some of that is a form of of censorship at at one level or another. So this is a, a pervasive problem. I know a lot of the CRT stuff gets the headlines, and rightfully so. But I think um, you know, as you're, as you're pointing out here, and Allison's describing, um, if, if we this is something we really want to combat, I think we need a more um, substantive approach. And I do want to say uh, about the the classroom monitoring. Um, we've seen this happen to a lot of educators. As an educator, many educators often take positions and say things and introduce content that they absolutely disagree with to get students to uh, engage with it and to make critical arguments about why they disagree with what's being presented. But with these tools now, we're seeing, you know, where either on Zoom, um, people are listening or recording or in the classroom. Um, some students are using things like their phones and recording teachers who teachers did have to explain to people who weren't in the classroom, who don't have context, why they were doing what they were doing, oftentimes uh, talking to members of the press and parents and things like that. So th th this, sur this surveillance threat, um, the, the privacy aspect is, is certainly um, one for students, but it's also something that teachers face as well, um, that they're constantly under a microscope having to explain things to people who aren't professional educators and who don't have context to understand what they're seeing or hearing. I think also there's this idea, I mean, I think it's pretty clear when you ban a book that that is a form of censorship, but I think there's also something to be considered about a sort of uh, pre-censorship, right? Teachers walking into classrooms who know that there is this feeling in their community um, or maybe a headline in their local paper, they might pre-choose to not introduce certain topics as a way of avoiding some of this trouble, which means that before, before they can even get in trouble for introducing something, they've diluted their own content as a, a safety mechanism or the exact opposite, right? Students will understand that this is a topic that gets a certain kind of attention and will just potentially sit quietly in in the background not asking questions not um trying to learn more not trying to challenge their own views because it's it could just be so quickly misconstrued so we end up with a diluted um uh, a diluted curriculum bef before it even begins which means we even more so don't know what we don't know right we don't know what we're not even being exposed to Going back uh, to the issue of uh, big tech in the classrooms, uh, maybe we should talk about how is this all accelerated um, by this sort of pandemic? Big tech giveth and big tech taketh away, right? Um, you know, I, we were obviously using on a, you know, K through 12, early childhood, higher education, we're using digital technologies well before the pandemic, right? Um, you know, we have classroom management systems, we have learning management systems. Um, you know, Zoom was not invented in March of 2020 by any stretch of the imagination, right? Um, so we had a lot of this before the pandemic. We had a lot of these problems before the pandemic. Digital surveillance, surveillance technology, surveillance capitalism, none of that started in March of 2020. It was all happening well before that. Uh, I think to the specific point in your question about how did it get accelerated is many of us in our in, in education truly changed in 
24 hours, 48 hours, right? I know my institution, um, we we started sort of closing up shop as you were in person right before our, our spring break, scheduled spring break. And the central administration instead turned it into like a two-week spring break, giving faculty a week to reconfigure their classes for the end of the semester. And then when we, you know, returned, quote unquote, because it was returned digitally, it was entirely digital. And many of us didn't set foot on campus for, you know, a year and a half. Um, so the pandemic, I think, sped it up, no doubt, because we all had to make a change pretty quickly. But I should I should backtrack my own language there because we all didn't make a change. There were plenty of people who didn't have access to high speed digital technology, who didn't have secure Wi-Fi, um, who didn't have the ability to attend class um, synchronously. Uh, and so we reconfigured really quickly and tried to make asynchronous options or something that could be slightly lower tech uh, to to help um, support differing levels of access. And, and we could go, go on and on and on about this. I, I said technology giveth and technology taketh away because I don't know. Could If this were the mid-90s, if this were the 80s, would we have done some sort of weird correspondence model where we like mailed out our assignments and sat and waited for our students to mail them back in you know if it were the 90s would it have been like a video recording on our home camcorder uh so the digital technology made it possible maybe not enriching um maybe not some of our best years our best teaching years or our best learning years but it certainly made it possible for us to continue schooling it also introduced the fault lines. It made it really clear, some of our multi-tiered systems. It made it really clear. That question of access became crystal clear, right? I think most of us in the United States have the ability to say quite loosely, sure, everybody has a smartphone. Sure, everybody has internet access. Everybody knows how to Google this. Eh, the pandemic showed us that that's not the case, right? So it accelerated both, I think, our stress um, as well as our understanding of access um, and potentially our ability to keep learning. Because of course, we it's not a black and white issue. Of course, we saw many examples of, of students who said this actually not the pandemic but this is an ideal learning environment for me because in the middle of class I can get up and walk around um, I can push pause on a recorded lecture um, and and take a break and listen to it again if I think I missed something it actually strengthened my learning as a student we saw those examples right um, so I think we learned a lot more and it accelerated some of our our big picture learning about what these technologies are about um, but I don't think any of it was brand new. These concerns or these benefits, these struggles, um, none of that was brand new with March of 2020. It just enabled maybe more people to see it and for us to kind of concretize a different understanding. Before we close out, I just had two more things I wanted to cover. Um, let's talk about the the invocation you guys do of uh, Orwell and in 1984, why, why do you think that's an apropos uh, invocation within your article? Because I, I know some people think, oh, Orwellian is thrown around too much these days. You know, everyone's using that term to describe uh, something they don't like politically. Uh, but I, I think it is apropos here. So maybe you could talk about why uh, you invoked Orwell. For sure. Um, yeah, I think using... Um... Orwell, Orwell's 1984 uh, speaks to how pervasive this surveillance is and the, the concerns about um, censorship and just utter control of thought that um, 1984 was was speaking to. And I think it's it's a good analogy for what Allison and I are trying to describe. Um, you know, a lot of this, th there's no um, tangible aspects to, some, to many parts of what we're trying to describe. So something like 1984 can make uh, the threats we're trying to raise a, a little more um, digestible. So that's why I think it's, it's it was really a, a good analogy um, to use here. I also think it, it speaks to something kind of interesting, though, that Orwell got wrong, um, and that I, I hope when people read uh, the, the work that Allison and I do that speaks to this as well, which is when you read like 1984, it, it's very clear that through for this is being forced upon people one way or another, even if they've learned to like normalize it. Um, what's interesting about the American um, story is that these these surveillance tools came from the military industrial complex 
but but corporate America put like a happy like thumbs up emblem on it or a little bird or a colorful Google um, uh, logo. And then people just flock to it um, and they do it themselves at some level um, and they've normalized it and they have mostly a positive relationship of these tools. And so I think using something like 1984 kind of peels back the veneer of this utopian future that big tech promises to reveal what these tools really are and what they're doing. So the last thing I wanted to talk about, and this goes beyond just big tech in the classroom. I guess when people talk about big tech now and in the age of, you know, digital technologies, I think people make criticisms, for instance, of, of social media. And they'll say, oh, social media has made everything so politically divisive. And, you know, that may be true, but I think it's such a limited way of, of looking at the issue, right? Because I, I think the criticisms that can be made of big tech are you know, more far reaching than that. I mean, in a way it, it upsets me even more that I think you could argue that there's a potential correlation between things like um, spikes in declining mental health uh, among youth in America and abroad uh, and the ubiquitousness of digital technology in our lives. And, you know, ultimately uh, these tech companies are about keeping you engaged, right? Like Facebook wants you to stay on Facebook. Um, and the data mining that goes on, I, I think this is like harming people on a very uh, deep level is, is what I'm getting at in ways that we don't yet fully understand. Um, and I don't think that's discussed as much. I think people focus on that one aspect of, oh, things have gotten so politically divisive uh, because of Facebook or Twitter. But I think it goes much deeper than that. I think it's harming us on a mental health level. I think, um, or it could be argued that it's harming us on a mental health level um, and just causing a lot of other issues. And I don't think the conversation is broad enough. And Nolan, you mentioned surveillance capitalism. I think that's not discussed nearly enough. So do you think we need to have a broader conversation uh, just within the, the social discourse itself about the negative impacts of uh, big tech on society? Oh, 100%. I think we absolutely, I think it, it absolutely needs to be a broader conversation. Um, to your point about how it may, you know, be contributing to our political divisiveness, sure. But that, and I, I, I don't think that that's incorrect, but that's not It's it, sort of the tip right? of the iceberg. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, if we want to start with political divisiveness, then we've got a long road in front of us because that's, that's not the end, right? Um, I think that, you know, I, there's it, it has to it, it's so hard because the bigger the conversation the harder it is to the, the, probably the more important it is but the bigger the broader the conversation the fact that this is our world right now uh means that there's there's less of a foothold there's less of something to grab onto so to nolan's point earlier like we can draw from 1984 because it's something that we have a, a tangible thing you know a tangible artifact that we can point to and to your point about like political divisiveness there's a thing that we can look at right there's a lens to which we can that we can focus on but i think we also need to take that bigger picture um and it's so difficult to narrativize the present, right? I mean, I think at any point in history, it's going to be really hard to narrativize your present circumstances. There does need, you know, there's, we can always make history neat and tidy because it's in the past, even though, of course, it's extremely complicated, right? But you think about, you know, um, we happen to be living in a time where uh, Putin is invading Ukraine, and that is extraordinarily complicated. And we can read different headlines and different stories about that every day. But we can also read about World War II in one to two paragraphs. That could potentially, it, it, it's easy to put things in boxes when they're like done, when they're finished, right? I think one um, potential intersection that, that's happening particularly today with how difficult it is to narrativize the present is how quickly things move, right? Digital technologies enable um material to move that much faster. So I think there is this increased pressure to therefore then make a narrative out of it. Um, and we have an increased difficulty in being wrong, 
there's an increased difficulty in saying, oh, I, I learned a little something different and I've expanded my knowledge, right? That's terrifying these days to us because that's like where cancel culture is going to come in or, um, you know, this sort of like idea that that we can't learn and grow because there's just so much that's documented um, and it's documented instantaneously. So this is kind of a really roundabout way of saying, yeah, I agree. I think there's a whole lot more going on. I think we need to look at it very carefully, but I think we kind of need to toggle back and forth between um, the, the, the thing, and for us in particular, it's surveillance technologies and education that is of utmost concern to us, and then also kind of take a step back and say, what is the bigger picture here? What is the bigger environment in which we're looking at? Where are we living now? And can we take a, a little bit of a pause to know that narrativizing the present is a real tricky thing? Do you think, um, in that regard, do you think part of the problem is, like I mentioned the issue of, of people talking about, well, how is big tech and, and social media affecting our mental health? And really, if you start looking at it, there's there's not, we don't have enough study on it to make like really clear statements on it yet. Uh, so do you think part of the problem is that we don't have um, all the data collected yet uh, in, in studies to make definitive statements about where big tech is taking us? Do you think we're in an uncertain period, I guess, in some ways? It's not just the data collection, it's the questions. What kind of questions are we asking? Because to Nolan's point before about how algorithms are reflective of the person who built the algorithm, data on anything, data on mental health, data on um, emotional, data on physical health is very dependent on who is asking what questions. Right. Yeah. And there, I mean, there, there have been a lot of studies connecting um, the use of these technologies to um, negative mental health outcomes. Um, some some writers have popularized them for more general audiences like uh, Jean Twenge or um, uh, Johan Hari um, just wrote a book about this recently. So they've tried to, to popularize some of those more wonky academic studies. Um, to get people to, to be able to, to access this information. Um, but we also to, to face when it comes to an issue like mental health, um, just culturally here in the United States, it's not an issue we've really taken seriously. And we, we continue not to really take it seriously, even um, though people rightly sort of um, note that we're in what people are calling a mental health crisis. We haven't seen a real serious attempt to put funds behind creating the resources that folks need to combat a mental health crisis. So it's uh, nice to see that it's being used rhetorically, but there's still a lot of work to be done to, to wake people up to the importance of the, the very issue you raise. Um, and then I think you can get more substantive conversations about things, about how like digital technologies contribute to it. One more thing real quick here. Um, you know, do you, is there, are there other reasons that we don't hear uh, this kind of criticism about big tech? Like for instance, I don't, I don't hear uh, a lot of, different media outlets talking about surveillance capitalism. Is it just that, you know, uh, big tech has a huge PR sort of arm, a huge um, lobbying arm? How much does that play into the ways in which we talk about big tech in society? Because I, I, I notice I'll always come across articles uh, saying, oh, big tech is going to help with this issue or big tech is like, how much money is going into the PR campaign for big tech? I'll, I'll just say something quick. I know Allison wants to jump in. We're, we're both looking at each other if who wants to take this one first. But um, yeah, the um, they have huge, huge PR budgets and huge, huge um, PR teams. Um, so, so part of it, I think, comes from their messaging. I, I have a piece coming out that's going to analyze. Um, I, I sat through all three hours of Mark Zuckerberg on, on Joe Rogan, for example. Oh, my God. That was I mean, it was incredible public relations, like basically non-critical platform uh, for him to reach audiences and put a happy spin on Facebook, big tech and and surveillance capitalism. So that, that's definitely part of it. But I think the other part of it, too, is is really um, us, the users, um, like any other, you know, addict. Uh, it's it's everything else. But, you know, what's causing the problem? So it's, you know, oh, you only use a smartphone for this, or I only use my laptop for this, or I can't imagine not being able to watch these videos. Um, all of those excuses come to mask some of these these deeper questions. And and I'd be interested to see what Allison says to this. But I know from personal experience, when you bring up these issues to people, 
Um, there's, you know, people will honestly tell you like, look, I just don't want to think about that. Or I can't think about that. Um, it's, it's something that's really, um, too heavy for a lot of people. And I imagine, uh, news media outlets recognize that audiences do not want to hear about 1984 coming to their reality. Yeah, no, I mean, I would agree with that. We do get, I, I wouldn't deny it that there are things that are convenient and there are things that are enjoyable about big tech. And we then sort of swim in those waters more than anything else. And I think we know as regular average everyday users, we know only a teeny tiny bit of what big tech is doing, right? I mean, if you look at what we do as just regular people on Google or on Facebook um, or on TikTok or on YouTube or any of that, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of what they they all do. They're the biggest, you know, the biggest landlords on the internet. We might say like, oh, I don't go to shopping on Amazon, like, and have this great sense of moral superiority. And I include myself in that. But I don't know that, or I might know that some of the other sites that I look at are owned by Amazon. So it might be a slightly longer route, but ultimately I'm at Amazon, right? Um, and, uh, you know, so we, I think in the big picture, we know very little and big tech has big money, right? So yeah, I think to your question, sure, they have great PR and advertising and marketing um, uh, budgets, but they also have great legal budgets. And the amount that some of these companies, Google, for example, got quote unquote caught um, getting uh, illegally mining data from minors from people under the age of 18 and had to pay a fee. The fee was insubstantial compared to how much they stood to gain from the data. So sure, they're going to pay that fee because they have so much in their coffers uh, and probably are doing so much more than we would even necessarily know about. Um, so I think it's also the, you know, this is a case where where it's it's that looking behind the scenes, it's trying to trace that sort of ideological ladder and seeing where this material is. Uh, and, and, you know, surveillance capitalism, I think, is a, is a kind of an, it's, it's an important term, and, and Nolan and I use it a lot, um, and I think we, we stand by it, but surveillance capitalism doesn't necessarily hit people when they're at the grocery store or at the gas station. It's not that type of issue. It's a, it's a much more diffuse, um, much more invisible issue than something really hard and fast, um, like looking at a price tag. Uh, even though they're connected, it's harder to see the surveillance as being part of your decision making. So in closing here, I mean, given how ubiquitous big tech has become and these surveillance technologies have become, I mean, what what modes of resistance to all of this uh, in, in the classrooms and beyond, what modes of resistance are left? Are there uh, modes of resistance? And if so, what are they? I would say that the first mode of resistance is um, in for like getting to know about it. That's that's part of what Nolan and I have been learning in our research is that, you know, there's a lot of awareness about big tech and data breaches, but there's much less awareness about big tech and classroom surveillance. And so that's part of our motivation is our first, you know, step one of resistance is we want you to know about this. We want you to get it. We want you to be informed because if you're, if you're informed, then you can say, yeah, okay, I'm being monitored or my students being monitored or my classroom is being monitored, but I at least have a multi-dimensional understanding of it. Right now, we think that people are just, they're, they're either informed and isolated and they're kind of alone in it. You know, really soon after our piece was posted in USA Today, we were getting emails from people that were like, oh, this is happening in my community. I don't know if, you know, anybody else knows about it. And it was just this theme of like, I'm alone. And that's one of the things I think, you know, to, to if, if step one of resistance is information, step 1A is information and you're not alone with it, shared information. So I think those, that's our first, you know, one of our first steps to resistance. I think that, I think that's really, really important. I mean, all, all great, um, social movements necessitate organizing. You, you can't do it on your own. I know um, some of our history books incorrectly choose one or two figures to say they did everything, but it's always um, massive organizing. So you, you have to start at that 
community level. And like Allison said, it necessitates being informed and sharing that information, which means having difficult conversations. Um, if anybody wants to know how to be the most hated person at a cocktail party, I'm happy to share all my tricks. Um, but but having that um, having that like community and, and organizing aspect is necessary. And then I think from there, I, I would encourage people to, to ask um, parents to ask um, their children about this, um, to ask their, their teachers about this, to ask their schools about this. And for teachers and school administrators, you know, be comfortable admitting, like, I don't know, but I will find out, um, you know, try and create a comfortable space where folks at least want to explore these issues, even if we draw different conclusions about what to do about it. And then, and then lastly, I would say, um, and this may be seemingly difficult, I would say don't go, don't get overwhelmed. Um, you know, the story of human existence is literally people organizing um, to overthrow oppressive structures one way or another. Um, and, and this can seem so ubiquitous and so powerful, but I take strength from looking at previous movements against, uh, you know, pl plantation slavery or, or advances against um, patriarchy, uh, the defeat of the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I guess temporary defeat if you look around in 2022. Um, but look at those um, those examples, I think, can be sources of strength um, to realize that, that we are capable of of um, resisting something as forceful as big tech or capital surveillance capitalism. Well, Nolan Higdon and Allison Butler, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views, and I hope we can have another conversation um, in the future about uh, whatever both of you are working on uh, down the line. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Nolan Higdon of Project Censored and Allison Butler of the Media Freedom Foundation. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.